Ski Aspen Skiing Company saw that this multi-resort pass thing was, was here to stay. It was a product that the customer wanted and was relevant to today's customer. Your parents and grandparents, they went to Snowmass, they had a great time. They bought a condo. Snowmass is the only place they ever went, you know, uh, whereas that next generation of skier, they're going to Snowmass, they're loving it, but they're saying, yeah, that was awesome, but I want to check out Jackson Hole. I want to check out whatever. And so that offering the multi-resort pass to allow people to scratch that itch clearly made sense. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got one of skiing's marquee names for you today. We are heading out to Aspen. First though, I need you to stop what you're doing and subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. The newsletter is the heart of this whole operation. If you found this podcast through iTunes or Spotify or Google or anywhere else, that's a great way to listen. But the Storm Skiing Newsletter article that accompanies this podcast has tons of additional context. And the pod is just part of the storm. The newsletter is a full exploration of the world of lift serve skiing in the United States with a special focus on the evolving world of multi-mountain passes. You want to get in on this? You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Aspen, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you are going to be shocked when you see the new format. It is a monster, 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches, what hasn't changed is the incredible wide-ranging writing and show-stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, due out this fall, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today at mountaingazette.com to reserve your copy. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That will ensure you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 54, Mike Kaplan, CEO of Aspen Skiing Company. Have you been to Aspen? If not, why not? There's a reason Aspen is synonymous with skiing, even for people who have never been within 50 yards of a chairlift. Aspen might just give you the best all-around week in U.S. skiing. That is a very high bar, but Aspen leaps right over it. Aspen Mountain and Aspen Highlands give you some serious, relentless terrain and without a single green run. That's okay though, because buttermilk is probably the best beginner complex on the continent. And Snowmass has a bit of everything. You could spend the week there and not even know the other three mountains existed and still have an amazing ski week. And then there's the town right there at the base of the mountain and the end of the road in the running for best ski town in America. It's also one of the oldest ski towns in America, but Aspen does not stand still. This is one of the most forward-thinking operations in skiing, locked in on sustainability, diversity, housing, safety, 
and quality of the ski experience. They've also, of course, been a leader in the evolution of the multi-pass, playing a crucial role in the advent of the Mountain Collective and Icon Passes. So I am pumped to get into a lot of that with the man in charge of it all. First, though, a quick note for those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time. The Storm Skiing Podcast launched two years ago with a focus on the Northeast. By that, I mean New England, New York, and Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. But when COVID hit, I started including more conversations with industry leaders in the West and continued that with my past coverage. And over time, it became clear to me that there was no reason to keep my focus on a small region of the country. While I live in the Northeast, I've been skiing the West for more than 25 years, and I grew up in the Midwest, so I'm very familiar with the coast-to-coast ski scene. And I am pumped up to explore these mountains in a whole new way. Don't worry, Northeast folks, I am not abandoning you. I've got plenty of Northeast pods and other coverage in the pipeline. All right, let's do this. My guest today has been the president and CEO of Aspen Skiing Company since 2006. Aspen owns and operates four Colorado ski areas, Aspen Mountain, Aspen Highlands, Snowmass, and Buttermilk. These four mountains collectively offer 5,527 acres of terrain, 362 trails, and 41 lifts. He has worked at Aspen since joining the company as a ski school supervisor in 1993. Mike Kaplan is my guest. Mike, so good to have you on the show today. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So let's go back to that first job at Aspen, 1993. I'm sure Aspen was a very different place back then, but tell us, how did you get that first job and how did that first year go? You know, uh, I, I really got that first job just by uh, sort of pounding the pavement and sending my resume out to every place that I could. I was just finishing my MBA at the University of Denver and uh, I knew I wanted to make a life out of the ski business by then and dedicated my my studies and sort of customized my my MBA to to prepare me for that. And um, so when we're applying for jobs, my wife, Laura, we were seven months pregnant. So there was a little urgency there, uh, but we definitely wanted to find the the right town and the right fit. And fortunately, uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Henry Hornberger, who had been a ski school director down in Taos when I was there, uh, was the ski school director at Aspen Mountain. And he was looking for somebody who could do all the, the things that ski school directors typically don't like to do. Uh, you know, send out the newsletter, do the budget variance reports, you know, it's a lot of that admin stuff that lo and behold, I graduated, I got my MBA. And so I was perfectly qualified to do that kind of stuff, but I could also go out on the hill and, and do a ski school split and, and that kind of thing. So um, I found that I was, I had a pretty unique skill set with that hands-on experience plus the MBA uh, that set me up uh, pretty well. And, and Henry uh, gave me a chance and sort of never looked back and never left since then. Ski school supervisor, two thousand or sorry, ninety three, and um, just kept showing up to work, and here I am, still showing up. Had you ever been to Aspen before? Yeah, I know I had been to Aspen. You know, we growing up, we went to Taos. That was our place. But I think as a family, we went. I think twice. I think I was a young teenager in the in the seventies, and uh, definitely uh, had loved coming here and, and get, seeing the town was the the big difference. You know, the thing that that hit me from my very first visit. And then when I went to, I was at Boulder in undergrad and uh, would come up to Aspen, came up a few times for Thanksgiving just to sort of ski and get ready for the season. And then um, we actually trained, I think a couple Decembers during, during the holiday, we'd go to Highlands and train on the, 
uh, off the Palmolive there. And uh, yeah, sort of got to know Aspen in my teenage years, 20 years. And, um, and yeah, so when I landed here, I, I knew it was a great place. Ended up being a great fit. Yeah, I want to focus mostly on the mountains, but I do want to talk about the town briefly, which you mentioned. That, that really is what sets Aspen apart. It's a really special place. Just having that little city right there at the base of the mountain, you can walk right to the lifts. Take us back here, Mike. What was Aspen like when you showed up in 1993, the town of Aspen? You know, the cool thing about Aspen is uh, it then, and I think continues to be today, a place where you know, you have sort of that messy vitality, you know, it, it was a town first, uh, before it became a resort. And, and that's still, you know, still present today. And, and for sure, uh, in, in 93. So, um, you know, 93, of course, you had uh, a few more dive bars, you know, Cooper Street Pier, uh, you had Little Annie's. Uh, and, um, you know, you, ha- you had those places where uh, it was easy to hang out and sort of see see your friends who are locals but you also always had the you know uh, cash cash was there then and, and the higher end restaurants and and to me that's always been the the cool thing here is you have both you know it's not an either or um and and if you want to you know, go for it and, and uh have that high-end dinner you can or if you want to just be a ski bum and hang out um you know you can you can still do that and so i, I think that's um, one aspect of it. The other one, um, especially in, you know, continues to, to thrive today. is just all the cultural stuff, you know, Aspen from the beginning was about mind, body, and spirit. So it was, you know, yeah, Aspen Skiing Company was formed in 1947. Um, but the Institute was formed in 50, the music festival around then from the early days, it, it's always been about more than just skiing. And that, that, community-wide embrace of the Aspen idea, uh, very much alive and well uh, since the 40s. And, and that's pretty unique and, and pretty cool to have a vision that has stayed relevant uh, for 75 years now. So you've watched the town evolve over going on three decades now, but I'd imagine you've been evolving yourself that whole time. So take us on this journey, Mike. You come there as a ski school supervisor, eventually go all the way up to CEO. How did you make that happen? Um, you know... I do joke that I just, I, last man or woman standing, I just kept showing up. But, uh, <laughs> you know, as I said, I, I, I spent six years in Taos and really those were formative years for me. Uh, you know, I got to work a little bit for Ernie Blake uh, for a couple of years before he passed away. And, you know, he always wore the hat and it says, I'm the janitor, you know, <laughs> and it's, that's totally stuck with me, you know, and Jean Maillet, who just passed away in the last year, another mentor, Mickey Blake, um, you know, and others, a guy named Bill Echemende, who was GM. And it was it was always a hands-on place, you know. And, you know, Jean, every evening, you'd see him sweeping, uh, sweeping the floors. And and I really learned that business from the ground up and that ethic from, from those guys. So I spent time, you know, uh, teaching skiing, driving snowcats, working ski patrol, working snowmaking, lift maintenance, vehicle maintenance, all that stuff. So I had six years of that under my belt. And so then going back and get a business degree, um, when I came to Aspen, I found myself sort of in a position where I had hands-on experience, plus I could, you know, you know, run a spreadsheet and understand the sort of the financial implications of business decisions and strategy. So um, to be able to bring those, those two experiences together 
and, and come here and just, you know, just work hard and, and just sort of uh, work with people to make sure we, we accomplish the common goal, which was at the end of the day, you know, great skiing and, and really embracing sort of the lifestyle here and being, you know, having a passion for sharing that lifestyle uh, with others. That's, to me, that's really what it's always been about. It's what I love about this business and uh, what I, I try to do every day and, and it becomes contagious and um, sort of showing up and listening and, you know, expressing that sort of passion and being willing to work alongside uh, everybody, no matter what they do. Um, it served me well over the years. And like I said, I just kept showing up and was six years in ski school and, and loved that. And then I was about six years uh, VP of Mountain Operations and uh, learned a ton and worked with the great general managers to um, evolve the experience. And and um, and then, yeah, since 2006 as CEO, sort of similar philosophy. And that's, that's been the journey. Well, you've certainly seen some interesting evolutions in the ski business and, and in Aspen in particular. So uh, let's turn our attention to the mountains here. And starting with Aspen Mountain, this is actually the 75th anniversary of the ski area. Talk about the significance of that milestone and what you're doing to celebrate it. I mean, 75 years is a, is a long time and, uh, you know, it, it, it's pretty cool. If you, if you think about, um, where we were 75 years ago, Aspen, uh, Aspen was formed around this Aspen idea. Uh, and you know, Aspen mountain has always been the, uh, the original mountain, right. And the one where, uh, the 10th mountain division veterans, after they went out to fight the great war, put their lives on the line, lost their, you know, many of their friends and, and colleagues in the war. What did they do after that, you know, life-changing experience to, to put it lightly? Uh, they said, we're going to come back to Aspen and, and turn that into a scary and, and share that with the world. And so that's a huge um, sort of legacy uh, that I think we, we owe those founders to make sure that we, we celebrate when we look back on their, their vision, but we also uh, bring it forward. We sort of call it heritage innovation, honor our heritage, build on our heritage, appreciate, you know, the work and the, the shoulders uh, uh, of the people who we stand on. And, um, but take it forward and make sure we're taking their, their spirit and their philosophy uh, forward. And so that's uh, what we're trying to do. We're trying to celebrate that with the 75th anniversary, um, but also to look ahead and make sure we continue to, innovate um, and, uh, and stay relevant at the end of the day. So that's what it's about. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, we're hoping to have the governor here in January recreate that famous photo where there's the dedication uh, of lift one. It was the world's longest ski area, uh, sorry, world's longest chairlift when it got put in, um, you know, 1950, we held the first, uh, first FIS world championships outside of Europe and, and that's always been the vision here is let's not do it. Let's do it, uh, at, you know, at the highest level, at a leadership kind of level. Um, and that's, again, we're, we're going to try to look back and celebrate that and, and look ahead and say we're going we're gonna to stay on that path. So as you look forward and, and you mentioned staying relevant and continuing to evolve Aspen Mountain for the future, you have two pretty big projects in various stages of negotiations, approval, building, uh, the Pandora expansion and the Lift 1A or Shadow Mountain Lift replacement. So let's take, talk about each of those. So first, uh, Shadow Mountain Lift, Lift 1A is in the same line. I don't think it's quite as long, but in the same line as that original 
Lift One at Aspen Mountain that you referred to. Uh, before we get into the specifics of that project, Mike, just tell us about the significance of Lift One at Aspen Mountain and then the present day Lift One A. Yeah, it, it is where it all started, right? The, the Lift One was originally there. And as you know, I said, we dedicated the, the lift in 1947. Um, but as as the town has evolved, sort of the center of mass has moved east and obviously putting in the gondola has pulled the center master skiing over to the east. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that west side is still like some of my favorite skiing on, on the mountain. You know, it, it's really, it's steep, it's north facing, it's got real character. Um, and we still have the, you know, the original lift towers there, uh, the original bow wheel down there. Um, and, and you look at that and you go, wow, this, this, you know, this area, it's time has come again. How do we bring this back into sort of modern use while, while honoring that past? And I think it's really important. We do that. I think it's exciting. I think it'll, it'll change the way that the mountain skis in a way that's, um, really going to, going to be great for everybody and, and to bring that part of town to life. And again, it, it will be super exciting. So I think it's important. Um, and and I'm, I'm excited to see it, uh, moving forward in the near future. So give us the details here, Mike, what do you have in mind for the replacement and what is the timeline for that? And where are you at on that timeline? So it's a complex little project, uh, like most things, uh, (laughs) in Aspen. And, um, uh, so we're hoping that the project gets started in 2023. Uh, there's two developers down there that own two different parcels and, uh, you know, one is going to be uh, a pretty much a hotel, the Gorsuch project, and the other one, Lift One Lodge, is more of a mixed-use uh, residential project. Um, but the the big move there is to bring the lift really back down to Dean Street, basically back down to the bottom of of the mountain, which is uh, really an important sort of stake in the ground that that we all um, rallied around. And when I say we all, those two developers plus uh, the city of Aspen and, and ourselves. And, um, so, but coordinating that amongst those four parties is, is definitely been, been complex. Um, so that's why, again, we're hopeful that we're ready to go in 2023. It's probably a couple of years of building. Um, we may have that lift out of service for a year or two, because you can imagine it's a lot of, um, one, you got to create the, the pathway egress and access for the lift and the ski back and the snowmaking. And then there's a lot of excavation work that, that's got to be done. Uh, but when it is done, you know, you're going to have great pedestrian access, great bus access. The lift will be a telemix because uh, we think it's time to reactivate the, the Ruthie's restaurant, uh, which will be at the top of that, that lift. We'll, we'll shift the lift over a little bit to the west so it lands immediately adjacent to the, to the Ruthie's restaurant. And then the idea is that we can activate that restaurant um, uh, for sure, winter lunches, and we we're hopeful we can do something in evenings and even in the summer as, you know, as the area gets um, sort of settled into its new role as, as a, an important part of, uh, of town in the mountain. So it's a pretty cool vision. Uh, I think it's, it's like I talked about, it's sort of that heritage innovation thing. It honors our past, but it, but it modernizes um, that whole area and makes it really relevant for, for the future. Now, a telemix lift, that'll be a combination of six-pack chairs and gondola cabins, right? That's correct. Actually, we're thinking four, you know, a quad chair, so. 
that's a that's it's nonetheless it's a very aggressive replacement for what is now a double chair. Uh, talk about the logic of putting a much beefier lift in that line and what that will enable you to do. Well, it's a couple of things. One is it'll allow us to take foot passengers up to the the restaurant. More and more, of that's what we're seeing is uh, people show up and and maybe this is their first taste of the mountains, their first experience in the mountains, uh, and they're not skiers yet. So to be able to get them up on the hill and have lunch and see the views and see skiers going by. Uh, it, it's really an awesome experience and creates more access to uh, a broader audience. Um, and then it, it's also sort of part of that, you know, that sort of keeping the, the family or the group together where, you know, maybe one member of the family doesn't ski, uh, but they can still go up and, and hang out with the, with the whole family or the whole group. Um, so that's the thinking is, is to have that restaurant be accessible to the non-skier. Um, and then the second part is, um, you know, as you look further down the road, does that lift eventually go to the top? Is that ultimately the replacement for the Ruthie's lift? And you want to make sure you're, you're building a lift that um, can can do that. And, and again, is, is sort of providing the flexibility uh, for, for the future innovation that'll be out there. That's that's a really interesting concept. As far as those historic elements that you mentioned that are still down in town from the original lift one, the towers, the bow wheel, will those stay intact? Or are you are you taking those out, putting them somewhere else? What's the fate of those historical elements? Yeah, those will be they'll remain intact. They'll be restored. They'll be moved over a little bit that that bow wheel anyway to the side, and then the historical society uh, will be uh, in the building. Actually, we'll share the building with them. Where. Our ticket offices will be, Historical Society will be in there as well. Uh, we'll have some historical um, imagery and potentially some even some historical pieces. We're still working on that, but they've got uh, they've got a bunch of great stuff. So it would, would really, I think, supplement what's already out there, uh, put it in the place where it's really easily accessible for people. And as I said, sort of uh, restore it. So. Uh, I think it's really going to be a, a cool. You're gonna you're gonna arrive there and you go, oh wow, this is this is where it all started. Um, but you're gonna then stand up, step uh, onto these sort of modern telemix kind of lift, and it'll take you up and and you go, wow. But it, we have certainly evolved and 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 accomplished a lot since since those first days. It'll be great. I can't wait to see it, Mike. All right, let's shift to the top of the mountain and talk about the Pandora expansion. Uh, This has been hot and cold for a while. Seems like it's pretty hot right now. We'll get into the current status in a moment, Mike, but first just lay this out for us. What is the Pandora expansion? What would it add to Aspen Mountain as far as trails, lifts, terrain? Yeah, um, so Pandora is uh, an expansion on the northeast flank of the... um, top of Aspen Mountain. Uh, if you've skied Aspen Mountain before, you've probably skied Walsh's and, and Walsh's, Christie's higher ups, great double diamond terrain uh, on the eastern flank of Aspen Mountain. And if you've ever skied Walsh's, you'll you see just beyond the rope, um, a bunch of terrain uh, to your skiers right there. Uh, that's always been in our permit area and our SUP, uh, but hasn't been open for, um, you know, return skiing in, in a, in a way that's developed. So it's, uh, it's about 153 acres, uh, of additional terrain, skiable acres. Uh, the chairlift would be uh, 4,200 feet long. So it'd be a five minute ride time. We put, would put a high speed quad in there. Uh, it's 1200 vertical feet 
Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's real terrain. You'll definitely uh, get to the bottom of the lift and, and be feeling your legs and you'll be able to repeat ski up there. You know, if you skied Aspen Mountain, uh, it very much skis top to bottom, especially because of the gondola. So to follow that example of Walsh's, you know, an expert skier, a lot of them will go Walsh's and then you go down and over to um, Gents Ridge and over to Jackpot and you go back to the, down to the gondola, you come back up and maybe do the face of bell over to, over to the dumps, back down to the gondola. So to add 160 plus additional acres serviced off of one lift uh, up high on the mountain, uh, we think a lot of a lot of those top to bottom skiers will will hang up here uh, and, and repeat ski in the Pandora's area for a while, and it'll really spread people out, provide a lot of options. So that's the the layout, and, and um, I I think the way it'll it'll impact a skiing patterns. So that should bring Walsh's, Harrops, and Christie down. And then will there be additional trails and glades skiers right of Walsh's going down to that new lift? Yep, exactly. Uh, there'll be uh, of that 153 acres, um, you know, about 37 acres will be uh, actually intermediate trails. Um, and, and then we'll have another 40 acres of expert trails and the rest will be uh, gladed terrain. Um, but as I said, 1200 vertical feet, You'll be increasing the the vertical drop of of Walsh's by about fifty percent, um, and then you'll have you know uh, what is it one two three four uh, five new trails um, plus all plus the gladed terrain. So uh, it, it'll be it'll be a real pot of skiing. It'll be great over there. Oh, that's beautiful, and and that's that's terrific terrain over there. I I've uh, I, I've skied it many times. It's. Uh, it's short and, and I kind of got to the cat track and, and looked over the edge and thought, wow, that looks skiable, but I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So I'm, I might get lost down there. So I just skied back to uh, Gents Ridge, but, um, but that's really exciting, Mike. So, you know, I know this project has been on and off for a long time and I've been following along with your county commissioner meetings. Um, and it seems like the next one's in October, but lay it out for us. What's the current status of the Pandora's expansion? Um, yeah, so we're, we have been at it for a long time, uh, you know, three years in our most recent discussions, uh, but they actually started, uh, well, goes way back, but 1997 was the last master plan we did. Um, and we, we, uh, talked about doing it then. So, um, we're in the process now. We've had two Florida County commissioners meetings. Uh, we have another one coming up in October. Um, and it's still very much a discussion. I, it's, it's interesting because, uh, public comment has been very supportive, uh, of, of the expansion. It's within our existing permit area. Uh, it is, uh, really a cleanup, uh, of the forest. We think it's gonna, uh, well, it's been fully studied by the forest service and, and they came out with a finding of no significant impact. Uh, we think we can do this way that, that minimizes uh, the uh, taking of, of live trees. Uh, it's going to benefit forest health in that uh, we're going to be thinning, uh, expanding on the species sort of diversity that we all know and have learned through through the pine beetle experiences we've had here in Colorado, that that's important. Um, and then it's also going to be, be taking a lot of fuel uh, out of the forest. There's a lot of jack straw, deadfall uh, kind of trees that uh, from a fire perspective, um, fire prevention standpoint, it'll be, be very beneficial. Um, and then there's, look, we are a ski town. 
Uh, Aspen Mountain is very much of a, a locals uh, ski mountain and to be able to spread people out more and enhance that experience for locals and visitors um, is really in line with, uh, as I keep saying, the Aspen idea, the mind, body, spirit concept uh, of making sure, you know, we continue to move forward in a way, or as I said, we had the world's longest chairlift, we had the world's longest single stage gondola when the Silver Queen gondola went in. Um, we host X Games. Uh, we've got you know some of the most amazing terrain anywhere in Highland Bowl and Deep Temerity, and we think Pandora is a perfect complement for uh, that sort of strategic position. And so those are the discussions we're having with county commissioners, and uh, we're hopeful um, they'll agree with us and, and grant us approval at the next next meeting in October. So I, option, the preferred option, obviously, is the expansion. I had a recent meeting with the commissioners, though. You did say that if Aspen was denied the right to expand, the mountain may exercise its right to build residential units atop the mountain. And you also said in the same sense, you don't necessarily want to do that. So talk about how that land is currently zoned and what Aspen's options are if the county does deny the permits for expansion. Yeah, I mean, look, we're in the ski business and uh, we want to stay in the ski business. And we think it's important that Aspen Mountain remain competitive. And, and that's really what it's about. Um, but we also need to be realistic. And if, you know, the rural and remote zoning, which is the zoning back there, uh, is maintained and, and uh doesn't allowed doesn't allow for alpine skiing as, as they define it there then we need to take a hard look at what we can do what we should do and what's our you know what's our obligation um, so uh, all all those options are on the table and you know if skiing there's a lot of skiing that happens back there right now um, if we're being told skiing can't happen there you know, we have we have to have a discussion with the county commissioners, right? Does that mean we need to close those boundaries? Um, if you're really saying you never want skiing back there uh, and you want it to remain zoned residential, then we got to think about that. Like, okay, what does that mean relative to our development rights back there now? Do we want to perfect those, protect those, uh, build on those in a way that um, makes sure we protect our property rights and and at the end of the day, the skiing public's access to that um, and how we do that. So I, I'm trying to make the decision clear um, that we are in the ski business, want to stay in the ski businesses, and this is critical for us. But if you're telling us that we can't do that, um, then we're, we'll have a fresh look at it and see if we want to do something different. Um, so that's really where we're at. Um, I'm hopeful we don't go there. And let's say you do get the project approved and, and you're able to do the Pandora's expansion. I'd heard rumors that Gents Ridge may get pulled out in that circumstance. Any thoughts about that or am I getting ahead of you here? Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about that. Uh, you know, the, the other is why don't you just replace the Gents Ridge lift? Um, and the problem is the Gents Ridge lift doesn't, doesn't service enough terrain um, and it wouldn't service this terrain well. And then you'd still have, you know, Walsh's would be the same length. And you still have to trudge out of there on Lud's Lane, for example, which is the road that's uphill from from the bottom of Walsh's. So, um, the, our plan is we would put in the Pandora's lift, leave Gents Ridge for now, and see how it changes uh, skier patterns and, and traffic patterns. Um, I, I believe it'll probably render Gents Ridge obsolete, um, but we just we want to see it. We can model it all day long and guess, but. Um, 
you know, since we have the lift there, you put the new lift in, we know it's going to service a bunch of new terrain. Then you watch and, and see what happens. And then we have, we have a couple other options. You know, there's another idea is you take Chance Ridge out and you put a, a lift up the back of Bell 2, basically, and then you could service um, more of, of copper and then people could go back up that lift and drop back down over to Ajax Express. Um, we also have the Bell Mountain chair, which is be getting more use lately, especially with COVID where, you know, it was an open chair and a good option, uh, open air chair. So it was a good option to the, to the gondola. Um, you know, does that suddenly get more usage or less usage? We look at, you know, do you, do you shorten that lift and start that somewhere else? So, um, ski area planning is very much about, you know, human behavior and, and the snowfall and the wind and what's going on. So, um, we're going to almost prototype it, right? Put in the lift see how traffic patterns change and adjust accordingly. All right, let's jump over to Snowmass. You put a brand new high-speed six-pack on the big burn at Snowmass, replaced an old high-speed quad that went in place for the 2020-21 season. Uh, how'd that go? How'd it work out? You know, it went really well. Um, glad we did that. Uh, the, the old big burn lift was one of our, pretty much our oldest high-speed quad. We've got one more to replace called Coney Blade down a little lower on the mountain. Um, so, but that was, that was a critical replacement. Um, you know, we put the six pack in and we, we pretty much stuck with the same alignment. We, we brought the bottom terminal up a little bit so that it's easier to, to get to and from, from the Ullerhof restaurant and from, uh, the trestle bridge so that a lot of times people would, you know, get confused and, you know, try to meet their party at the burn only to find out. They went over to Sheer Bliss or, or High Alpine. So it makes it easier to get across that trestle and not get stuck down in that hole. And it, and it, and it reduced the ride time a little bit. Um, so that was a good move. Going to a six-pack uh, was a good move because those chairs are a little heavier and the burn is is one of our more exposed lift, uh, exposed to wind anyway. So um, it, it really performed well and handled the wind uh, beautifully. Um, and having to be a little shorter in the newer technology uh, the ride time was reduced. That, that lift runs a little faster. And then finally, we put a direct drive um, uh, up there. And so uh, that reduces your electricity consumption uh, by a little over 10%. And it really represents state of the art, uh, takes some of the maintenance complexity out without the gearbox. And so really happy we did that first direct dive lift. And uh, I think you'll be seeing more of those on our mountains as we go forward. You mentioned Coney Glade. Do you have a timeline in mind or, uh, or, or an idea of what you want to replace that with? You know, we're, we're working on that. Um, we'd like to do that as quickly as we can, which is probably around 2023, give or take. Um, you know, the Coney Glade lift uh, is a great lift in that it, it services the, the train park uh, and allows uh, the train park riders to, to lap that lift without having to go to the bottom. Um, so we want to maintain that optionality for those train park users. But uh, if we can bring it down a little bit and have, uh, have allow more people to access it from the mall, for instance, um, that would be amazing and take some of the pressure off of um, the six pack, the Village Express and the gondola. So we're looking at that um, and, and we're looking at a few different options. So um, that that's probably that's definitely the next lifted snow mass. And, and um, we'll see. Hopefully we can get that done in the next couple of years. How about Burnt Mountain? Uh, a lot of talk over the years of a lift up Burnt Mountain. That's some really fun terrain. Requires a little hike, nothing serious. But um, is that still in discussion? Yeah, you know, 
funny you mentioned Burn Mountain. We, what we said was um, we developed the terrain and and let people get used to skiing back there. Uh, it's it's really been a great addition uh, that terrain to the mountain. It's almost it's semi backcountry. It's a short hike, um, and if you go out in the gate out, out the gate into the Burnt Mountain Glades, uh, I still get lost out there in a good way, right? We were roped in, right. we get fully lost, but it's really hard to ski the the same line over and over again. It's it feels like a gladed backcountry area, and that's that's really cool. Um, and what we've said is when it, as base village gets out and we, if we start to see growth in skier days and snowmass, I think we said like around 900,000 skier days, we'd start to look at it. Um, and that's a soft number. We're just looking at how people uh, circulate on the mountain. And I, I think eventually that lift goes in, um, but no timeline on that. We're, we're pretty far from, from 900,000 skier days out there, but it's really nice to have that, uh, that ability to be able to add that lift and add that additional pot of skiing not unlike we're talking about with Pandora's where if you create a whole pod where people can repeat ski, it really uh, improves the experience across all the pods on the mountain. So uh, still out there, but no time limit. And do you think you would take the base terminal of that down to two Creek or would it start higher up in the mountain? It starts a little higher up. Um, it's sort of hard to describe, but it starts, if you're coming out of a uh, long shot, um, you, you come out and you start to get to a few benches that sort of rolls and there's a, a little road crossing that takes, uh, the, the, uh, two creeks homeowners will take over to one of their access lifts. It's at that road crossing. So it's, it's, it's a bit above the bottom of two creeks. Um, hard to describe probably 500 vertical feet or so above it. So it would still require some hiking off of L camp. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. It would, it would go to the top of of long shot. Okay. But then from elk camp, you would have to hike up still. Oh yeah. Sorry. So yeah, you'd have to hike up to get it or you could ski down, um, and get to the bottom terminal of that lift from, from the top of the gondola. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Yep. That makes, that's, that's the piece I was missing was, uh, was if it's, if it's, uh, not, not down to two Creek, how do you get on? But that sorry, yeah. explains it. It'd be, you'll, you would have to go down the two creeks lift and keep bearing right, but yeah, you would be able to get to it. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Uh, the, in 2015, Snowmass put together a master plan. Let's just take inventory here. What have you been able to accomplish so far in that master plan, Mike? And, and what do you have next on your checklist? Um, you know, Snowmass master plan, uh, we're in, in discussions now. Um, that's really about uh, updating the, the out-of-base capacity, having a look at the way people circulate, uh, looking at that, that Coney Glade replacement. Um, th those are the big things. Uh, we're also going to look at snowmaking and make sure we're uh, looking ahead and making sure we have the, the snowmaking, um, you know, capacity that we need uh, and we've got the right trails covered. So that'll be a discussion as well. We pretty much put in all the snowmaking that uh, we can in the existing mountain plan. We've got one or two very small sections we could add. Um, so really that's what it's going to be about, uh, review of snowmaking, review of, uh, lift access. Um, but there's no real terrain expansion uh, in our future in snow mass. All right, let's move over to Aspen Highlands and start with Highland Bowl. This is inbounds terrain, hike to terrain. Um, mostly you can take a cat a little bit of the way up. Is the idea, Mike, that you're going to keep Highlands Bowl hike to forever, or have you considered scenarios where there may be a surface lift or maybe even something more aggressive back there? Uh, did you see the April Fool's post we did a few years ago? 
Uh, no, I missed it. Oh, you should, you should Google it. We did an April Fool's uh, <laughs> post where we showed a, a magic carpet going right up the ridge of, of Highland Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of a good test for that. We generated some, some fun. Some fun. <laughs> but the locals love that. Oh, yeah. It's amazing how many people think it's real. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I think Highland Bowl itself remains, remains hike too. Um, I, I don't see that changing uh, in the foreseeable future again. I won't say forever because that's a long time, but uh, we think that's a pretty special experience, uh, that hike to experience. And, and people get stronger and the equipment gets faster and it's crazy. It seems like uh, it seemed like a like it was a lot bigger hike uh, in the early days than it is is now. Um, and the other key thing there is you want to make sure you get enough skier compaction. Um, you don't want to get it behind in storm and then you, you sort of get get a, a snow load piled up and you start to work about worry about snow safety. So we are getting plenty of skier compaction in there the way it is. Um, and, and so I don't anticipate that changing, but we have looked over the years at, at the, the Ridge cat, you know, there's that short cat ride about 10 minutes, uh, that gets you to the, um, you know, to the end of the Ridge. So you get to onto the sort of narrow part where you really start the upward hike. And so that's something we'll keep talking about. Do you do a surface lift eventually there to replace that cat um, or some sort of short chair lift um, is something we, we, we continue to look at. Uh, we had a great debate about whether or not we restart uh, the bull cat for this year because we didn't do it last year with COVID. And um, I think it's important for providing access. So we will continue to do that, but on a more limited basis than, than we used to. So I don't think it, it'll be seven days a week. Um, so that's how we're thinking about the bowl and the ridge. Uh, the other area uh, that we'd like to get into some more in the future is is what we call um, east of Eden in the Loge Bowl area. So that is within our permit area. You could eventually potentially see um, a chairlift, not unlike the Deep Temerity uh, chairlift on the um, on that east of Eden side. Uh, so that's something we're studying, um, and that would be fun. Um, or do we get into that Loge Bowl area and just just extend the road over there? So those, those discussions are ongoing. Patrol continues to study it, and um, that's something uh, we'll, we'll look at over in the coming years. Yeah, I, I really love the Deep Temerity Lift. That's where I spend the majority of my time at Highlands lapping that. In, in, in it, you know, when I see the way that 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 mountain expanded down, it reminds me a lot of the Pandora expansion, because you had a lot of that terrain there before you just hit the cat track and you'd have to ski back to log peak chair. Um, but then you were, you, you expanded it down and put in deep temerity and it, it's, it makes you see the possibilities of Pandora and what it could become. It's so true. And I'm glad you said that. We try to keep pointing that out in our, our discussions with the County commissioners and a lot of the public have really said that they said, wow, Pandora has changed the way, you know, we ski and enjoy the mountains. And, and we think, um, you know, that's a, a great analog. Sorry if I said Pandora. I always see yeah, I mix them up, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, Temerity right. has done that, and we think Pandora is, is a great parallel and, and would would be a great addition to the, the four mountain experience. So, how about the uh, Golden Horn surface lift at Aspen Highlands, Mike? This is mostly for racers, but there, that seems to be a, a stop and go project. Where are you at with that? Yeah, that's really the the ski club, uh, and that's that's their project and. And so they're looking at that. Uh, it got held up with COVID. And honestly, I haven't heard from them uh, so far this year if they want to start talking about it for next year. Um, but my, my guess is they will. I, I believe they have it funded. 
Um, it's a question of timing and execution. Um, there is some private land that extends on top of the ridge. So they want to make sure they get it uh, placed exactly right. Um, so I know they're, they're having those discussions, but I honestly haven't heard anything lately. All right. My wife will not let me have this conversation with and get away with not talking about buttermilk. So let's go over to buttermilk. Um, a lot of people dismiss this place. It's a mountain for beginners or the park guys. What's your take on it, Mike? Yeah, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Stay away from buttermilk. No, nothing to see there. <laughs> no, it, it's. Um, I was actually talking to uh, my old friend, Jerry Bland, who, who used to be CEO here. And we were talking about Klaus, you know, and how amazing and inspirational Klaus Obermeier is. And, and Klaus, uh, well, look, that's his place. You know, he'll go to ski. And Klaus tells this story about standing at the bottom of Buttermilk with Friedel Pfeiffer, you know, the original founder. And, and they looked up and they said, wow, look at that. Look at that light up there. That's what Klaus would say in his accent. His eyes light up when he says it. And, and it, it's made me see, you know, Buttermilk and, and that part of the mountain in a different way. And it's, it really is a buttermilk is magical that way. It, it's one of those where the more you look, the more you see, the more time you give it, uh, the more you appreciate it. Um, the terrain, the light, uh, the trees, the grooming, you know, which you can ski on runs that were groomed two days before, and it still feels groomed because you get so little pressure up there. Um, you know, I once I'll take a pair of GS skis up there and pretend I was a racer one day and, and it's, it's totally different. Or you go up there and a snowboard, I, you know, that's where I prefer to snowboard and, and play around in the trees. Um, you know, I'm not a park rider, but uh, to see what, what those kids and athletes are doing in the parks uh, is really, it's just inspiring and amazing. And it represents the future of the sport to see what they, you know, what they wear. Um, you know, it sort of keeps us young and, and energized. Um, and then there's the whole uphill aspect of it. You know, I, I uphill up there, you know, once a week or so, do the early morning, uh, sort of the perfect sort of way to start off a day. And, and there's so many people doing that now. Um, it really is, it's our, our hidden gem and something that really completes uh, the Aspen Snowmass experience for locals and, and for the visitors who are uh, savvy enough to, to find it and spend time there. It really is beautiful, Mike, how all four mountains work together because you go to Aspen, you go to Aspen Highlands, there's no green runs. You go to Buttermilk and it's just this nice mountain. Like you said, the snow stays good for a long time. Um, it works perfect for our family. My wife likes to take the half day lessons there and I'll go over to Highlands and then I'll meet her and we'll ski together at the end of the day and there's no crowds and it's sunny and, and the, the, the runs are long. It, and then, you know, you have snow mass, which is just this whole other thing, probably bigger than all the rest of the three put together. And altogether, it's just, such a unique ski experience that you really don't find anywhere else in America. I, I agree. I think it's great. By the way, Buttermilk, you forgot to mention the view, right? And you get to the top yeah. and you have a spectacular view of the back of Highlands and Pyramid Peak and even all the way to Sopris. And, uh, but I do think it, it is really, and I think a lot of people don't appreciate it. Like each of the mountains, uh, they're so easily accessible, but they, they complement each other so well. And each one has such a unique personality. And that, that's something we work on and try to try to nurture and foster um, because they have their own personality in terms of just the way they ski, you know, and and um, but also just the the way the employees um, there's a, a slightly different almost employee sort of culture at each one. And, you know, we are one company, but, you know, buttermilk is 
you know, there's three lifts. They all go to the same place pretty much. And everybody has the locker room at the bottom. And it, it's much more of one cohesive unit. In, in a snowmass, you have, you know, distinct pods. You have, you know, depending how you count, I guess, three different patrol headquarters, right? And three different stations there. And, and you almost have this different personality. Elk camp is very different from, from campground or the burn, you know? And, and so it's, uh, again, a, a different culture and personality. And then, you know, Highlands, of course, has, you know, basically one ridgeline that goes, goes straight up and you have the whole bull culture. And then, and then Aspen Mountain is that, you know, we have the Aspen Mountain dogs and we have the, the Belmont buck off at the end of the year. And you have the, um, sort of the history there. It, it, it's really cool how each one in and of itself is you've almost stepped into a, uh, a different world when, when you go up to each one. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, I try to do this once a year. I ski all four mountains in one day, like, you know, let's nice. go do, a, do a lap on, on uh, snow mass and try to do it by taking the bus. I must confess I cheat once in a while, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty amazing that those four different worlds are all so accessible uh, from, from one Valley. And, um, yeah, I, I, it keeps me, you know, energized and engaged. And I always say, I've been here, whatever, however many years since 93, I think it's 28 now. Um, I'm still getting first, whether that's, you know, uh, skiing a run I never had or skiing, you know, connecting runs in a way I never had, uh, or for sure in the summer, whether it's a hike or, you know, going to a concert or doing something else like that, there's way more than you can ever do. And, and, uh, yeah, it's FOMO in a good way. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing kingdom. And, and what we're seeing these days, Mike, is more and more folks accessing these via these specialized multi-mountain passes, Icon Pass, Mountain Collective. So let's talk about these a little bit. And I want to go back to the creation of Altera here because the two parent companies came together, KSL and Henry Crown. KSL had the resort now known as Palisades Tahoe, and they rolled that into Altera. Henry Crown is Aspen's parent company, and they did not roll Aspen into Altera. Why not? Why didn't Aspen become part of Altera? Why did it stay separate? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll step back and, and sort of talk about our, our participation in that, um, that, that merger from you know, sort of the early inception of it. So we, because it's tied to all this, this really is this season pass, multi-resort pass phenomenon that uh, is the genesis for it. And so we asked the skiing company, um, you know, saw that this multi-resort pass thing was was here to stay. It was a product that the customer wanted uh, and was re- relevant to today's customer, right? I think we're, you know, I'm not a millennial, uh, but... You know, I think that that mindset is, is contagious. And, and so this desire to explore, um, to experience uh, other mountains, other communities, other places, um, really became pretty widespread uh, over the last 10, 15 years, right? Where yeah, your, your parents and grandparents, they went to Snowmass, they had a great time, they bought a condo. Snowmass is the only place they ever went, you know? Uh, whereas that next generation of skier, they're going to Snowmass. They're loving it, but they're saying, "But yeah, that was awesome." But I want to check out Jackson Hole, or I want to check out, or I want to check out whatever. And uh, and at minimum, there's sort of almost that bucket list phenomenon checking them off. Or at minimum, they're saying, "Okay, yeah, Snowmass is my place, but I'm going to take my spring break trip somewhere else, or I'm going to take my guys' trip somewhere else, or my girls' trip, or whatever." And so that offering the multi-resort pass to allow people to scratch that itch um, 
clearly made sense and, and applaud uh, Epic for, for discovering that. And so we said, yeah, we like that idea, but we want to do it as an independent resort and partner with other independent resorts to make that happen. So that was the thinking behind the, the creation of the Mountain Collective, a bunch of independent resorts getting together uh, to be able to be able to provide a multi-resort pass but to provide it in a way that works for each of us as individuals. So that format of, it includes uh, two free days in the price of the pass, and then it's 50 off thereafter. That allows a lot of flexibility for a lot of resorts to participate. Um, but what we saw as, as the multi-resort passes evolved um, was uh, to stay really competitive um, and to make sure we could keep the collection of resorts together, to keep the band together in Mountain Collective, there need to be, needed to be uh, sort of a stronger tie and a broader product offering. So that's when we started to talk to uh, KSL and Mammoth and, and really some of our partners uh, in the Mountain Collective, right? Because uh, I'd say Palisades was a founding member of, of Mountain Collective. Um, you know, Alta was and um, Jackson Hole was. And, and as we saw resorts come in like, like Whistler and then go out when they got acquired, and said we got to create a way to make this more more consistent from a customer standpoint. So we got together with those guys and said we need to build a more lasting alternative. And it ended up being, you know, we need to create a new company. Ultimately called Altera uh, to build that that platform. Um, but that was the lens we at Aspen Skiing Company were looking through when we invested uh, alongside KSL to create Alteras. We wanted to build a lasting uh, past platform. Uh, so that was the original vision, but we also sort of always want to maintain our, uh, at least our optionality to stay independent. And we felt like for Icon to be successful, it needed to have independent partners in there. So people like Jackson Hall um, and, and not just wholly owned resorts. I think it just is a better offering for, for the customer at the end of the day. And, um, Again, opportunity to keep the band together. Um, so that's really how we've always thought about it. We weren't really thinking about, um, you know, merging Aspen in and, and it being um, fully into Altera. Um, and you know, that that's where we remain. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Obviously, we're we're wholly owned by you know uh, the Crown family and. Um, they really appreciate the, the that uh, Aspen's a unique place. They all have, you know, they all spend significant time here. Pretty much all of them learn to ski here. Pretty much all of them are, you know, now their their kids and grandkids are learning to ski here. Um, and there's just that that strong attachment to the place. And so that's really sort of the original thesis for why we got in uh, and, and sort of partnered to create Altera. And I think why we stay separate is um, just different and unique. So you ended up on the Icon Pass and went along as normal for two years. Uh, and then for the 2020 to 21 season, Aspen, along with Jackson Hole, pulled off of the base pass onto this plus pass tier where skiers had to pay an extra $150 to get their five days at Aspen and Jackson Hole, which when you break that down is not a big per day add-on for those two resorts. However, um, it, it is a, a way to 
uh, take it off that base product and reduce some of this overcrowding that seemed to have the locals a little upset. So, so take us through that decision um, of, of pulling off the base pass and pulling out of that special tier. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tricky. We're, we're trying to just always strike that right balance. Um, you know, we're a true destination resort. Uh, you got to drive by a lot of ski resorts by the time you get to Aspen from, from the front range. But, um, you know, we are seeing shifts. We're seeing big growth, right. In, in the front range, uh, and in people saying, you know what, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get out and road trip and take an extended trip, especially now uh, with COVID and people being able to work from wherever they are. Um, so we've always known that, you know, getting on icon, um, we've always known that we didn't know what was going to happen, right? We didn't know how many passes they were going to sell. We didn't know how many people would, how many days people would ski. We didn't know how many resorts they would visit. Um, so we, from the onset, we wanted to take it slow um, and make sure we could just strike that right balance and make sure we can uh, get the visitation uh, when we wanted it, uh, where we wanted it. And so that's why originally we were five days with blackouts on the icon base and then seven days uh, without blackouts on, on the full icon pass. Um, and as we started to see the, that popularity take off, as we started to see people willing to drive up to all the way to Aspen for a day, or they'd go to, you know, Copper for a day, Steamboat for a day, and then Aspen for a day, uh, and started to see visitation patterns where it, they tended to come, especially that base pass visitor tended to come when, you know, our locals are out or they would chase powder. And, and, and so we started to see some, some peak visitation around a very few number of days, but those days that said, you know, that's starting to hit uh, sort of the experience in a way that um, we're not geared up to handle. Uh, and honestly, for us, it was looking more down the road um, because we were able to make some some adjustments early on. You know, we added some additional chairs to the high alpine lift. You know, we added some bus service to the intercept lot and, and did some things to, you know, better handle that. Um, at the end of the day, we, we didn't want to ha- end up in a situation where we had big swings in visitation where weekends were super busy and then weekdays dropping off and wanted to even it out. So that's really the thinking for why we got off the icon base and went to uh, just staying on the, just being on the full icon pass. It, it's more of a true destination visitor that's on that full icon pass. And that aligns more with um, what uh, the offering we try to provide and the consistent uh, experience we try to provide. So that was really thinking behind it and, and so far so good. So you've continued to evolve your Icon Pass participation. And meanwhile, you've kept the Mountain Collective alive. I think a lot of folks thought that that would go away when the Icon Pass came out of the scene. Uh, why, why is the Mountain Collective still around? And, um, and what do you think its future is? You know, it's a good question. Um, yeah, we're, we're evolving the, the products as we go. You know, the Mountain Collective is, um, seems to be a little bit differentiated from, those, from Icon or Epic or the others. Um, because it's, it's a little bit of a, a lower sort of price of entry when it's just including those, those two days and then provides more flexibility with the, the 50 off. Um, and it's also become a little bit of a different collection uh, of resorts, you know, having Grand Targhee on there, uh, having the Canadian, additional Canadian resorts like uh, Panorama um, on there and Sun Peaks and, and in addition to, you know, the Revelstoke and, and Ski Big Three. So it's, 
Um, it's quite an interesting sort of Alberta, British Columbia offering that's pretty cool and in getting traction. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's something that it, as long as the customer is saying, yeah, it makes sense for us and, and it complements um, what those others do, I, I think we continue doing it. Um, and it's, it's a great collaboration uh, amongst, again, a bunch of independent resorts. And I think there's other benefits to all of us participating especially during a time like COVID where we can, you know, share what we're struggling with and, and provide tips for one another to offer a great experience, a safe experience out there. Um, so it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good band that we want to keep together there as well. So Aspen is the managing partner of that coalition. And shortly after last March's COVID shutdowns, uh, Liftopia, which was the platform that you were using to sell Mountain Collective Passes, failed to pay more than $2 million that it owed Aspen. The skiers had already paid to buy them. So Aspen then joined Altera, Boyne, Boyne Cypress Mountain, and a basin in trying to force Liftopia into involuntary bankruptcy to try and find out, hey, what happened to the money? Liftopia successfully fought that off and sold itself. Partners who were still owed money could file a claim, which I understand was supposed to be paid out in July and from everyone I've talked to has not been. Um, what can you tell us, Mike, about that money that Liftopia owed Aspen and how that situation has evolved over the past several months? Um, you know, first I just say we're we're happy it got sold. Uh, hopeful that Liftopia, you know, stays in business and is able to continue to service, you know, customers and, um, you know, consumers, skiers, as well as the ski areas. Um, and... But we, you know, we took that action because we want to make sure uh, the money, you know, uh, our money, the customer's money uh, that was meant to be used for the following year's lift access uh, didn't get used to pay prior year bills or who knows what. Right? We felt like that was important and, and we had a duty to do that. Um, but again, the hope was they, they'd continue to, to move forward as a going concern. So I'm hopeful that's where they're going to end up post-sale. But honestly, we're still waiting to hear uh, on what the resolution's uh, going to be. So uh, hopeful we'll learn shortly, but um, I don't really have much of an update beyond that right now. It's like you said, July has passed and here we are in September and, and still waiting for, for resolution. I mean, $2 million is a lot of money to just go poof, Mike, even for an organization the size of Aspen. Uh, so essentially, if a customer bought a Mountain Collective Pass on Liftopia before the March shutdowns last year, they were able to use that pass, but you and the partner resorts never got any money from that. Is that right? Liftopia just lost the money? That's right. We we wrote it off. Yeah. So just basically effectively hit hit, our, hit each of the resorts yield. Um, so Liftopia has uh, reformulated part of its business under the Catalate name and promised to fully repay partners who did business with them. What was your response to that? Are you taking them up on that offer? We're not. Um, we were never really a, a big, well, been a long time since we've done a lot with Liftopia. Our, our our relationship was was pretty much just about Mountain Collective, and uh, we've moved on at this point. And um, we're gonna, uh, yeah, not go back into that. But again, we wish them luck, and uh, you know, not forever. We'll we'll see what happens in the future. I, I wish you luck with that. Uh, so, Mike, you've said that your goal is to quote allow the resort to stay in business forever. End quote. How do we do that? Boy, it's tougher than I thought it was going to be when we, when we said that. <laughs> no, I, I, it, part of it's a mindset, right? And we're, 
we're owned by a family, so they're taking a multi-generational look. And I honestly think it's it's the right way to to run a resort because you want, you know, you want the community um, to be healthy and sustainable uh, over multiple generations. And, and honestly, I feel so passionate about this sport uh, and enjoying the sport with not only friends, but, you know, my family, my kids, I want to do it with my grandkids. And um, I think it's such a gift to be able to give the gift of skiing to your, your kids and grandkids uh, that I want to make sure that, you know, we can do that forever. They, they can enjoy um, this, this unique way to really fully immerse and engage in, in nature. Um, but with climate change, um, that's, that's really becoming a challenge. Um, and that's really what informed our, our sustainability ethic, our environmental strategy uh, over the last couple of decades. You know, when we got into it, it was about, you know, just doing right by the, uh, you know, the environment in which you operate, you know, and, and, you know, recycling and, you know, doing cool reforestation projects and, and those types of things and giving back uh, to the environment. But as climate science became, you know, apparent or more widely understood, right, it's been around for a while, but as we came to really understand it, started to realize, wow, this is an existential threat. Um, we want to stay in business forever. We've got to do something about it. And, it's not only, so we've sort of taken a couple tacks. One is, yeah, you know, take care of your own, you know, backyard, front yard, do the right thing, um, you know, composting in all our restaurants and everything we can to do our part as individuals. Um, the other part of it is, is to advocate. Look, we can be influential with our brand. And if we act alone, it's not going to solve the problem. But if we act together, if we can influence uh, our friends in the industry, our competitors, uh, our customers, our customers who own and run businesses uh, to become aware of the issue and act on it, then we will have done a lot and have, a, have had an outsized uh, beneficial impact on sustainability. Um, but then the other thing we've, we've really pushed on and come to realize is we can serve as a model uh, for figuring out solutions. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of digging in. Uh, enough digging in. Let's fix this. We have the technology. We have the know-how to fix this. And, and so to me, our, our, the best example is um, the methane plant uh, that we helped install over over the hill here in, in Somerset, Colorado. And, and that's an, a coal mine that is uh, now shut down. But at the time we, we put the methane in, methane plant capture plant in, uh, it was up and running. And we partnered with Oxbow Mining we partnered with our, our utility, Holy Cross, Gunnison Energy. And it took a you know it took a whole group of us to come together and and try to find a solution, but we did, and we were able to take methane, which is currently, uh, which well, which at the time was just being vented out of the coal mine uh, for worker safety purposes, and said, "Wow, this is being efficiently captured. Uh, what if we pump this through th some some generators and convert it to electricity?" So the first game was just to, to capture it and stop it from venting uh, into the atmosphere. Methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. Uh, but the second really cool step is to actually take that methane and convert it into electricity uh, in the form of three one, one megawatt generators uh, in place, uh, creating 24 million kilowatt hours per year of energy from what was just a, a wasted resource. 
uh, a huge win. Uh, and, and so we're, at the end of the day, we're killing carbon. We're actually earning a, a fair return on our investment. Um, and hopefully we're, we're proving as a model uh, of potential solutions to this incredible problem. Um, and I, what I like to say is that if a bunch of ski bums can figure out how to you know, kill a bunch of carbon and generate a return on investment, man, we should be able to figure this out uh, as a country, uh, as a planet. So let's, let's just do it. You're setting the template there, Mike. All right. Wish you best of luck with all of those. Uh, one real quick thing before I let you go. Last week, Aspen said that it would require all employees to be vaccinated prior to the 2021 to 22 ski season. Uh, I, I thought it was notable that you said explicitly, this is something we were thinking about before President Biden made his announcement about all the vaccine mandates. We just think this is the right thing to do. So talk about the process of deciding to move ahead with that employee vaccine mandate and why you made that decision. Yeah, you know, I guess we're sick of COVID. <laughs> Tell um, me about it. Oh, man. So, no, it, 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 tough decision. Um, you know, really tough decision. We're, um, we definitely don't want to repeat the, the issues of last year, but we want to, and, and we want to learn from them. So last year, our goal was to get open, stay open. And it seems simple. Uh, man, was that hard. Uh, and it took, you know, thousands of decisions, you know, reimagining every aspect of our business. And I, I think we did a pretty good job relative to that goal. Um, but a lot of people got sick. Uh, you know, we had at one point, I think 90 people out, um, capacity restrictions, you know, we, uh, we couldn't, we were probably getting less than two people per gondola at Aspen mountain. Um, because of that, we had our restaurants shut down for quite some time, no indoor dining. It was tough. It was tough on the employees. It was tough on the guests. Um, and you know, so now with the rollout of vaccines, man, we have the opportunity. Our goal for this year is to get open and stay open at full capacity. Um, and so we want to get there and, and really the only path we see to getting there is to get to that 95 plus percent uh, vaccination rate um, to the best of our ability. So uh, we saw the opportunity to do that. I, well, it starts with our employees since we saw the opportunity to do that. Our employees, you know, right now we're probably about 90 percent. Um, but as we ramp up into the new season, new employees coming online um, and, and things get busy again. Uh, we can't afford to slip to 85% or 80%. We've got to get uh, up to that maximum possible level. And, you know, difficult as it is, felt like the vaccine mandate was, was the only way to do it. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's really about employee safety, um, community safety. we got a very small hospital here. And if we start to get into a situation where we have too many people in the hospital and, and the facts are showing you're five times more likely to uh, get COVID and nine times more likely uh, to end up in the hospital as a result of COVID if you're not vaccinated. You know, if we ended up in that situation and our hospital reached capacity and could, couldn't take somebody who, you know, had a head injury or a knee injury, that that's a problem, right? We, we can't operate under that, that assumption. So. Um, felt like it was it was the right decision needed to make it and really happy to see that others are doing it as well. Vail announced this week that, that they're going to require vaccinations 
uh, East-West Partners is going to require vaccinations. So uh, if we can help be a catalyst for that um, and, and get the ball rolling, get more people vaccinated and, and put COVID behind us, um, then that's the right thing to do. And that, that's really the thinking behind it, and the intent. Well, tough decision, Mike, but I think it was the right decision. I congratulate you on having the leadership to take that. Um, I cannot thank you enough for your time today, Mike. I really wish you the best of luck in the 2021 to 22 ski season. I hope it's your best one yet. And uh, I'm looking forward to my next trip to Aspen. Thanks, Stuart. Yeah, look me up. would love to get a couple runs with you and, uh, and your wife. And, yeah, ski buttermilk. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. All right, Mike. Thanks so much. Awesome. That's Mike Kaplan, CEO of Aspen Skiing Company. So much to process there. What do you think about those big projects on Aspen Mountain? Really good stuff there about Altera's founding. And how about that screw job by Liftopia? Got them for two mil. What is your reaction to all of that? Thank you so much for that, Mike. And thank you all for listening. Next up, Tim Kohi, owner of China Peak, California. This one is already recorded and I've got to tell you, it is fascinating. Even if you've never been within 500 miles of China Peak, you're going to want to hear what Tim has to say. Got a whole bunch more pods in the pipeline too. Next week, going to hit Australia for the first time in a conversation with Mount Bueller GM, Roy Blampy. After that, going to talk Boyne 2030 with Boyne Mountain GM, Ed Grice. Then, conversations coming up with leaders of Crystal Mountain, Washington, Ski Cooper, Shawnee, Maine, Jackson Hole, Wachusett, Steamboat, and more. Again, you have to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to get the full experience. Go do that right now. You can also follow along on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. You can also find the storm on Facebook. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.